Which brings us to Act 3. Jesus makes a very public royal entry into Jerusalem for Passover. People are hailing him as the Messiah. Then he enters into the temple courtyard and he asserts his royal authority by running out the thieves and crooks and stopping the sacrificial system. Then this kicks off a whole week of Jesus debating and confronting the leaders of Israel, condemning their hypocrisy, and so they set in motion a plan to have him killed. And Jesus warns his disciples, predicting that Jerusalem and its temple will be destroyed within a generation, and his disciples will be persecuted just like him, until he returns one day to bring God's kingdom fully over the world. And it all leads up to the final night. Jesus has his last Passover meal with the disciples, a symbolic meal that told the story of Israel's liberation from slavery through the death of the Passover lamb. And Jesus takes these symbols and he gives them new meaning. They point to the liberation from sin and death that will happen through the death of the suffering servant Messiah. From here, the story rushes forward to Jesus' arrest, his trial before Israel's priests and the Roman governor Pilate, all resulting in Jesus' crucifixion. And it culminates in a key scene that matches the important scenes from Acts 1 and 2, except this time it's darkness that descends, not a cloud. And instead of the divine voice from heaven, it's Jesus' voice crying out before he dies. And then most surprising is that it's a Roman soldier who sees Jesus die, who grasps and then announces who Jesus is. This man was the Son of God. He's the first person in the story to recognize the story's shocking claim about Jesus' identity, that it's the crucified Son of God who's the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who died for his friends and for his enemies. After this, Jesus' body is placed in a tomb, and on the first day of the new week, two women from his disciples come to the tomb, and they discover that the tomb is empty, the stones rolled away, and an angelic man informs them that Jesus isn't here, that he's risen from the dead. And so he orders them to go and tell this good news to the other disciples that Jesus is alive, that he'll meet them back up in Galilee. And the women, they're freaked out. Mark says that they fled from the tomb in terror, telling no one, for they were afraid. And that's how the book ends, with Jesus' disciples showing the same kind of fear and confusion that concluded Acts 2 and 1. Now, if you look in your Bible, you'll see that the Gospel of Mark has more to its ending, where Jesus appears, he speaks to his disciples, but there's also a note there telling you that that ending is not part of the original book, that it's only found in later, less reliable manuscripts. Now, it's possible that the original ending got lost or that Mark actually never finished writing his account, but it's more likely that this abrupt ending is intentional to make a point. The entire story has focused on the shocking claim that puzzled Jesus' disciples from beginning to end, that it's the suffering, crucified, and risen Jesus who's the Messiah, the Son of God, that God's love and upside-down kingdom were revealed as Jesus died for the sins of the world. And so this story ends without closure, and it forces you, the reader, to grapple with this very strange and scandalous claim about Jesus. And are you going to run away like the women? Or are you going to recognize Jesus as your king and go and tell the good news? And only you can answer that question. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is all about. We're reading out of Mark chapter 16, the very end of the Gospel. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. 
very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise. They were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So after Jesus is laid in the tomb, the Sabbath begins. It's sundown to sundown. And so there's 24 hours of forced inactivity, which is just pure agony for those who are grieving Jesus' death. There's really nothing that they can do to distract themselves. So imagine what it's like to spend that full day just soaked in that pain and that grief. They have no iPhone to distract them, right? Imagine how much more free time they have with no iPhone. But uh, there's nothing they can do. There's no mindless task they can do to take their minds off it. They can't work. They can't cook. They can't clean. They have to sit and let the full weight of what happened on Friday soak into them throughout that 24 hours. And so now the Sabbath is over and the sun is just starting to rise and they can finally do something. But there's just not much to do. He's already dead. The body's already off the cross. He's already been put in the tomb. The only thing they can really do at this point is give his body the the proper burial treatment that they didn't have time for before the Sabbath. And so in what they believe is going to be their final act of love and devotion, they go to the tomb to prepare the body. And they're already anxious. They don't even know how they will get into the tomb because of the stone blocking the entrance. And they must have been shocked and confused just on seeing the stone rolled away. And I don't know how often you guys visit tombs, but generally speaking, if you go to visit a grave or a tomb and it's open... There's not a whole lot of good reasons why that is, right? It's usually a bad sign. So you can imagine they're already fearful and anxious on seeing that the tomb, which they know was closed, has been opened. And then they walk in and they find someone sitting there. And again, I don't know how often you visit tombs, but 
Um, usually, if you go to a tomb and there is a living person inside of it, something's gone horribly, horribly wrong, right? They walk in and here's someone sitting in the place where the dead body is supposed to be. So you can imagine, again, their, their anxiety is ramped up as high as it can go. They're startled. They're confused. You have to wonder what's going through their minds in that moment. No one expected the resurrection. Their first thought is probably that the body has been stolen. That it's going to be put on display somewhere as some sort of grotesque trophy, which is not that uncommon in their world. So you might expect them to be a little bit relieved or maybe even joyful when this this angelic figure tells them that, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. But instead they're afraid. And they leave in fear. And Mark's gospel is the only one of the four that really focuses on that fear. Which means we have to wonder what exactly he's trying to tell us. And do you notice who's missing from the story so far? Jesus has not made an appearance. They haven't seen him yet. All they've seen is an angel who tells them that Jesus is risen. And he tells them that he will meet them in Galilee. But they have not seen the risen Jesus yet. They're afraid because they are still clinging to their old ideas about who Jesus was, who they thought he was. And they haven't yet had that encounter with the risen Jesus that will change everything. And Mark ends his gospel with an empty tomb and a promise. But really, it's an invitation. We don't see Jesus, but we're told, we know the tomb is empty, and we're told if we seek him, we will see him. We're invited to set off on our own journey to see the risen Jesus for ourselves. And by ending his gospel so abruptly, Mark encourages us to wrestle with the good news for ourselves. We actually have to think it through. If the tomb is empty, if Jesus is risen, what does that mean? What implications does it have for the way that we live our lives, for the values that we build our lives around? We have to decide how we respond to the news of the resurrection. And if our response is fear or disbelief or confusion, then we're actually in good company because these women went on to become the first apostles. They are the first people to preach the good news of the risen Jesus. They're the apostles to the apostles. So obviously they overcome their disbelief, and their fear. More of us respond with fear than we realize. Because fear can manifest in all kinds of ways that aren't obvious, right? Fear can look like stubborn denial. Fear can look like anger. Fear can look like hatred. It can look like rejection. It can look like holding back instead of fully committing. It can look like a refusal to put your trust in Jesus. Trusting instead in the things of this world, like money and power. Things we can control or that we think we can control. Fear is what drives us to idolatry. Fear is what causes us to worship at the feet of politicians or at the altars of money and power. And and fear is so often what separates us from Jesus. And if we really examine ourselves, what we'll find is that very often, Jesus is the thing we're afraid of. The resurrection 
is the ultimate victory of God. Death itself, the the force of anti-creation, has been defeated by the Creator. And with that victory, Jesus is now the undisputed Lord of the world. Jesus is King, and the King is alive. So why are we afraid? Well, think about all the things that Jesus said before he died. He told us we'd have to take up our cross daily. That we would have to be willing to die to ourselves, to crucify our sins with him, to make sacrifices alongside him, to suffer with him. And in the light of the resurrection, we begin to see Jesus differently. He isn't just a really gifted teacher. He isn't just a fiery prophet or a really clever rabbi. He's not just a role model or a martyr. He is our king and our God and the one who not only died for us, but lives again and promises us the same kind of eternal life. And all of that put together means he's not safe and his teachings are not comfortable. It means that he commands allegiance to him above anything and anyone else even though we still live in a world that does not recognize his authority. Following Jesus will never be easy. In fact, I mean, there, there's nothing in life that's easy. Difficulty is always present, but, but being a Christian carries with it a different kind of trouble. There's always going to be forces, both human and inhuman, that are opposed to the gospel and are actively working to suppress it. When the women entered the tomb, they were already afraid. They had been afraid for three days. They were afraid as they watched Jesus dying on the cross. To them, it must have seemed in that moment like everything that they believed in, all of their hopes and dreams, were dying with him. It must have seemed in that moment like evil had won. The moment Jesus breathed his last breath is the moment they lost all hope for the future. And that's the state they're in when the angel tells them Jesus has risen. All of their hope is shattered. They are utterly, completely broken. Their faith in God is completely shaken, if not just gone altogether. The world must have seemed like a much darker, much more horrifying place than it had just a few days earlier. And they've come to do the only thing that they know how to do, to honor their beloved teacher one last time, to anoint his body and give him a proper send-off. And all of that is very familiar to them. Everything that's happened up to this point is familiar. It's understandable. They, uh, they know what's going on. They know how to react to it. They know how to handle it. Even if there's not much they can actually do, even if it's not the outcome that they wanted, even if they are shattered and broken and living in fear, they still understand what's going on. It's all familiar. It's all within the realm of their experience. It wouldn't even be the first time in their lives that someone who had claimed to be the Messiah had been killed by the Romans. They've seen this all before right up until the moment when they see that the stone is rolled away. 
They didn't expect the stone to be rolled away, and, and that strikes fear into their hearts. They didn't expect to find someone else in the tomb, and that ramps up their fear even higher. They didn't expect to see the place where the body should be lying empty. And you have to imagine at that point they're beginning to feel outright terror. And they did not expect to be told that Jesus had risen. And now on top of all the fear and the panic that they're feeling, you can add in confusion. They did not expect to be told he was alive, that he'd meet them in Galilee. How could that be possible? Where is Jesus if he's not here? If he's alive, why isn't he here right now with us to comfort us and to tell us it's all going to be okay? None of this makes any sense. Jesus is alive, but instead of showing himself to his terrified disciples, he tells them to go back to Galilee and he'll meet them there. And in Mark's telling of the story, Jesus just does not appear to them immediately. He tells them where to go if they want to see him. And in its original form, the gospel ends right there with the promise that Jesus is alive and the instruction to go out and find him. The fear comes from the realization that Jesus is so much more than they thought he was. All the gospels are clear that up to this point, everyone thinks that Jesus is just a really good teacher. He's the leader, he's the Messiah, he's going to be the king, but they don't quite get that he is God. They still don't grasp the full magnitude of who he is and what he's doing until this moment. When we experience God doing things that we can't understand, not just because they're unexpected, but because they are truly beyond human comprehension, we get fearful. This is why we tend to downplay the supernatural work of God in our lives and in the world around us, because it allows us to keep God in a nice, safe little box. In a lot of ways, we would prefer it, actually, if God was distant and inactive, because if that's true, then we can, we can have a tame, easily understandable God who always does exactly what we think he's going to do. Because if that's the case, then we get to be the ones who decide how things should be, and, and we don't have to submit, we don't have to sacrifice, we can define for ourselves what are right and wrong, what's good and evil, what are love and hate. But that is not how God works. God isn't distant. In fact, he's intimately present in every square inch of creation. And God is constantly at work. And much to our horror, he is working towards his purposes, not ours. Because he is the king. God is on a mission. He has his own purposes in mind. And nothing will prevent God from accomplishing what he has set out to do. But we don't always understand what it is he's doing. I doubt very much that the disciples on the night when he was arrested understood why it was that he went willingly to his trial and then to his death. They had no idea what he was up to. They had no clue how this could possibly be the will of God. And I'm sure that as they watched him dying on the cross, they thought the same thing. How could this possibly be what God wants? They didn't understand what God was doing. 
And even when we do understand what God is doing, we don't always know how God plans to get from A to B. And we don't get to decide how God will accomplish his purposes. We don't get to define right from wrong, good and evil, or love and hate. We're called to submit to God's purposes and to trust him even if we're afraid. Even if we don't understand what God is doing, even if God is asking us to make great sacrifices. But he does not demand blind faith. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't pull the thing that my parents pulled when, when I was little and I would you know, ask them why I had to follow a rule or do what they say and they'd just say, because I said so. Right? Some of you do that too. Right? I may or may not do that with my child. But God doesn't operate like that. God doesn't say to us, because I said so. He doesn't demand blind faith. When we have doubts, when we want to turn back, when we want to question his character or his will or his methods, we look to the empty tomb. Because Jesus is God's answer to everything that has gone wrong. All of God's promises find their answer in Jesus. He hasn't just paid the price for our sins. He hasn't just defeated the forces of evil on the cross. He's gone through death and come out the other side alive again. And this is God's radical and insane and utterly incomprehensible solution to all that has gone wrong in the world. And it is so much better than anything we could have come up with. God has promised to put the world right again. God has promised that when the time is right, he will come again. He will raise the dead back to life and make the whole world new. That's his purpose. That's what God is working towards, and he invites us to join him in that work. Because from the very beginning, God created us to be his agents in the world, carrying out his purposes. And so on Good Friday, Jesus broke the power of sin and death and freed us for joyful obedience to God. And that's what enables us to work alongside the Holy Spirit to carry out God's purposes. But on Easter morning, when he rose again, he gave us a foretaste of the future. He's shown us what's in store for us. He's demonstrated once and for all that death is not the end. And it's okay in response to that, in response to all that God is doing in us and through us and around us. It's okay to, to see God at work, to see things happening that can't be explained, and to respond with, with fear and confusion and doubt. But the tomb is empty. And because the tomb is empty, we can trust through fear. We can trust through our doubt. We can trust through our confusion. Because the tomb is empty, we can follow even when we aren't sure of the way. Because the tomb is empty, we know that the future is certain no matter what happens in the present. Mark's gospel ends with an empty tomb and the instruction to go out and meet Jesus. My friends, the tomb is empty. He is risen and Jesus is king. Amen. Go out and meet him. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.